So I realized that we have to change that question around. And if we actually want to face a fear and do it with the best attitude, we have to ask ourselves, what's the best that can happen instead of what's the worst? Welcome to How I Work, a show about the tactics used by the world's most successful people to get so much out of their day. I'm your host, Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm an organizational psychologist, the founder of behavioral science consultancy Inventium, and I'm obsessed with finding ways to optimize my workday. My guest today is Michelle Poller, who I actually got connected with via Nia Eyal, who was uh, one of my favorite guests that I've had on How I Work. So Michelle's story is an interesting one. While she was doing her master's in branding in 2015 over in New York, Michelle actually started a project for her master's where she would conquer 100 fears in 100 days. This master's project ended up turning into a global movement that impacted millions of people and received coverage on places like the NBC Today Show, Fox News, CBS, CNN, to name just a few. Since that project five years ago, Michelle now travels the world, speaking to people at companies like Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Netflix, Microsoft, Toyota, and so on, about getting out of their comfort zone. Michelle has also written her first book, Hello Fears, which is coming out on May 5, and teaches readers how to create their own 100 Days of Fear project. So I was very much looking forward to this chat with Michelle, which was done uh, in the crazy COVID world that we are living in, because the majority of her work is keynote speaking. And within literally a couple of days, her diary was pretty much cleared with everything being cancelled. So we talk a bit about that. We talk um, about her 100 Days of Fear project and Michelle's uh, advice in terms of what has worked for her uh, in terms of overcoming her fears. So on that note, over to Michelle to hear about how she works. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Good to have you on the show. Now, I know you used to live in New York, but you were just saying before that you moved to Miami a month ago. And I'm wondering how how has your life changed with everything that is going on with COVID? Everything changed. And it's a lot of changes at the same time. I was ready for my life to change because I moved from New York City to Miami, which is like a huge change. But then this coronavirus came and changed things even more so people ask me how are you doing in Miami and I'm like I'm not even in Miami I'm in my home stuck you know like so I don't know how Miami is and and it's funny that people say oh I hear things are bad in Florida I'm like I don't know I'm just in my home and I'm wondering have you have you almost developed uh like a new daily routine because of what's going on Well, my life used to be very different to what I'm living right now because I'm a keynote speaker. So I used to not be home ever. So, and I even spent a whole year without a home because I really, I didn't need one and I work with my husband. So both of us travel together for me to present and do all these events. So basically we travel every single week. Sometimes we would spend three days at home in an entire month, imagine. Um, Yeah, so we went from a very, very hectic traveling life, living off a suitcase to suddenly being home for the first time in 
many years. How do you psychologically adapt to that? Well, it's been like a roller coaster. At the beginning, it was like really hard to understand how things are going to change and how what's happening is impacting directly our business. Because think about it, we work in the events industry. We depend on events to make our money. And suddenly all of our events got canceled or postponed postponed for later in the year or even for next year. So financially speaking, it was like a big shock and emotionally also because um, we have to redefine now our business, who we are, and try to take this as a challenge and not as an obstacle. I did read, um, I think it might have been an Instagram post about just how your work pretty much dried up overnight and I can completely understand that. I I do a lot of keynote speaking as well. And within a week, everything was postponed or cancelled in terms of um, speaking engagement. So I want to know for you, like, what strategies did you use to, to bounce back from that? That is a huge, huge setback. Yeah. So it's interesting. One day I was feeling really devastated and frustrated with the situation and very stuck. And I decided to do an Instagram story about it because I want my audience on Instagram to not always see me as the happy, optimistic person that I am, but to see all of my sides. And if I'm experiencing fear and anxiety, you know, not really like depression, but of course my mood was down. And one of them suggested, she said, Michelle, you're saying that you're so sad that you're not going to be doing your events, which is the thing you wanted to do the most. And she's like, why don't you host an event online live that, you know, that way you get to perform and, 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 you know, do share your message and we get to see it from all over the world. And those who would never have the chance to see you because you would not travel to their countries, perhaps then they would have the chance to see you online. And then I, in a matter of seconds, I went from feeling so sad to suddenly feeling excited about this idea. And I was like, that is such a great idea. This was a Tuesday and I started announcing it that same day that on Sunday I was going to do a live conference, actually two conferences, one in Spanish and one in English because a lot of my audience, uh, you know, they speak Spanish and they rather uh, watch the Spanish presentation. Wow. So how, like, how do you go from being completely down in the dumps one moment to then being open enough to, to hear that feedback, hear that idea basically, you know, get everything sorted for that to then materialize five, six days later? Like, is that is that innate or how are you doing that? I think that I personally like to fight or overcome my fears and my those kind of negative feelings. I try to fight them with action. So instead of staying in my comfort zone and feeling like a victim of this whole situation and just drowning in, you know, this feelings and and go to Instagram and try to distract myself or watch TV, I know that the only way for me to get over this feeling and start feeling better about myself is when I feel productive and when I take action. So I... 
I, I guess I was not finding the right idea. And when that person suggested that, it felt like that was the right thing to do, like the right idea that I was looking for and I couldn't find. So I immediately took action. And what I, I realized is that it's really hard to plan long-term right now because we don't know how things will look in a, in a few months from now. But it is possible to plan for short-term. So it was a Tuesday and I was like, oh, I can do this on Sunday. I mean, there's not like I have more things on my calendar because everything wiped up. So I have the time. Let me use my time wisely. Let me take action. Let me start working towards something that excites me and see what happens. And I want to know, because I imagine your diary has gone from being completely packed with events to being kind of empty. So uh, I, I want to know how how do you decide what to do with your time? Like obviously this week was taken up um, or, the, you know, that week you're describing was taken up creating this uh, this kind of virtual event for your um, for your audience. But aside from that, like how, how do you feel that time now? How do you know like sort of what to do and almost kind of give yourself, I guess, that structure or, or discipline that um, that is gone when the event industry disappears overnight? And that's definitely a challenge, but I think the most important thing here is to have clear objective. So what is going to change are not your goals, but how you reach them. So my goals are still the same. I want to reach as many people as possible. I want to continue speaking. I want to launch my book that launches in May 5th. Those things are going to happen because I want them to happen. And so now I just have to figure out different ways to get there. And so, for example, my focus when launching the book was going to be around the events. I had so many events in April. I was going to be speaking in front of crowds of 5,000 people, 3,000 people, 10,000 people. I had those events aligned and I thought, okay, that's how I'm going to be selling my book uh, in pre-sale. But then that's not happening anymore but I still want to sell as many books as possible. So I changed my strategy and now I'm spending more time trying to find podcasts, which is what I'm doing right now. <laughs> and I just did literally a podcast uh, an hour before I started this one and I have one coming up after. So um, that's how now I'm using my time in a different way, but still same objectives. Um, and for as far as speaking goes, instead of now traveling and speaking in front of a crowd in person, we are now reaching out to all of our clients and asking them that instead of post postponing the event, we do it online, live or pre-recorded. So now I have to record myself performing my whole talk and I have to send it to some clients and they've been hiring us to do that. So it is about getting creative and using your time wisely because if we don't, then we will end up you know, just being on our phones all day long instead of actually doing something about it. I'm always curious with people that, that do a lot of keynote speaking, what's, what's your process for creating a talk? Um, you know, I mean, in, in, in a lot of ways, it's like creating a one woman theater show um, in some ways. So I want to know like, what, what is your process or what was your process for creating, you know, the, the, I guess the, the most common or popular talk that, that you give these days? So I have one talk that I've been evolving throughout time. So it's hard to say, um, it, like if I would have built a different talks, then maybe I have a better answer. But for me, it's like I started in 2016. 
um, I built a 45 minute talk that I deliver and I started little by little tweaking it. And every time that I would say a joke, imagine that the third time nobody laughs. I'm like, okay, that joke has to go. And then suddenly as I'm speaking, I say something like a random thing, like, thank God. And then everybody laughs and like, I'm like, oh, if I say thank God after that sentence, everybody laughs, then I should keep that. The good thing is that I work with my husband. So he travels with me, right, to all of these events. And he's always there taking notes. So whenever I say something that triggers the audience in one way or another, he always takes note and he's like, don't say that again, please. Or that was a good idea. Continue saying that. So it's really good because otherwise I would, I think I would forget what I said and what made them laugh. Um, so the talk that I give today is the product of four years of work four years of feedback, right? And that's the only way to actually uh, perfect something, I guess, and, and make it, take it where you want it to be. It's by giving it over and over and over again and being very receptive to feedback and pushing yourself to improve it every single time. And so, you know, like I'm saying, I only have one big talk but it has so much work into it. And I actually started writing a new talk a few months ago. And uh, it's been a hard process because I always compare it to the one I already have. And it's not even close to that. But of course, the other one has three, four years of work. And this one has a few months and nobody has seen it. So it's about not putting that much that much pressure on ourselves, uh, having a very clear message of what you want to say, then build stories around it, make it as personal as possible so you can actually own it and you don't feel like the talk that you're writing can anybody can give it, right? It's yours from your own experience, from your research. Um, and, and then it's a matter of putting it out there and being okay with failing again and again until you get it right. And I want to know, like performing this talk, because it kind of is a performance um, for four years, how how do you keep it fresh? I mean, do you have days where you wake up and you're like, oh, my goodness, this is the like 1,051st time I'm delivering this talk and I'm just a bit over it. Like how how do you, yeah, I guess keep it fresh for every audience? So for me, it's a matter of wanting so bad to communicate this message to the different audiences and know that they've never heard it before. So I might wake up exactly how you're describing one day and say, oh, again, let's go, let's do this thing one more time. But when I go, get to the place and I look at people's faces, because for me, it's really important to see the people before I present, not to hide backstage. Some people like to hide until it's their time to speak. And I don't, I like to be with the crowd. I like to sit next to them, hear them speak, with, you know, like hear them talk among themselves, get a feel for the audience. And I started realizing that these people need my message. And I tell myself that after they hear me speak, they will start tackling their own fears. I want to talk about the project that you're most well known for, which is um, 100 Days Without Fear. And perhaps for, for people that are not familiar with that project, could you maybe give like a, a summary of what that was was all about maybe before I delve into a couple of questions around it. Yeah, for sure. So in 2015, exactly five years ago today, okay, so uh, five years ago, I decided to start this project called 100 Days Without Fear, where every single day I would face a different fear. 
um, my idea was to do it consecutively. And this was part of a master program that I was doing in branding. So in 2014, I moved to New York to do a master master's in branding. And um, I knew that there was a 100 day project coming up, uh, which is a challenge, right? That is a global movement, actually, that starts every year. And it is part of the program. So I always thought that I would do something related to branding, maybe 100 different logos for one same company or something around design and branding that could get me a job in branding afterwards. But living in New York made me realize that I was way too afraid of life and leaving my comfort zone. And I had so many opportunities that I was not taking advantage of So because of my fears. So I decided to use that opportunity of the 100-day project to tackle all of my fears. Also, I was recording the fear. So it was not just going and facing a fear. It was recording it, editing a video, putting it on YouTube, and doing a blog post about it. So every single day I was doing that, and I started facing, um, you would say, smaller fears. But for me, they were big, like eating oysters for the first time, holding a cat for the first time, um, getting a Brazilian wax. I was doing all sorts of crazy uh, but smaller things in the beginning. And then around day 40, the project went viral globally. So all over the world, they were talking about me on the news. They were interviewing me, um, CNN, CBS, Sunday morning, uh, Daily Mail, Today Show. They were they all wanted me to be in their shows. And so um, after that point, I started to face bigger fears because I felt I had a bigger responsibility. And also I had a bunch of haters saying that my fears were things they do on their day to day, that those are not real fears. So I decided to challenge myself a little bit more. And that's when I started facing bigger fears like skydiving, holding a tarantula, posing nude for an art class or even quitting my job in advertising. What was it that happened at around day 40 that made it go viral? I think it was just an, an enough amount of fears uh, or, or of videos that was getting people's attentions. Because at the beginning, maybe it's like only this girl facing two fears, 15 fears, maybe 20 fears. But then, you know, to see someone that already faced 40 fears and she keeps going day after day, I think that was a good enough reason for people to start talking about it. No one was doing anything like it at the time. And so somehow... It hit the news. And so it came from a project from your master's in branding. What were some of the things that you gave a lot of thought to in terms of turning this project essentially into a brand that has reached millions of people all over the world? Yeah, so I I wanted to brand fear. And then along the way, I realized I ended up branding courage, not fear, because fear is just an emotion, but courage is an action, right? It's when you take action despite your fears. And for me, I was very intentional on when I was building this brand that it represents accurately who I am. So I feel like I can own what I'm doing in my project and my brand. So I call it 100 Days Without Fear. The logo was a really cute ghost. So everything had to be like cute and funny and uplifting about it because fear is a very dark topic and taboo. You know, people don't like to talk about their fears. So if I'm going to be out there talking about my own fears, being vulnerable, I want this to be lighthearted. I want it to be fun, entertaining, so 
I, everything around it, for example, I created what I called an emoji meter, which was my way of measuring the level of fear that I had before, during, and after each of the experiences. So I used emojis to measure all of my fears. It was the tone of the brand was very intentional. It was very me. And I think that connected with a lot of people that, because they don't want, when, when they're talking about fear, they don't want this dark brand, you know, that is all black and no, they want something that they can feel hopeful um, when they see it. And that's what I wanted to give everybody hope. So, so that makes sense in terms of the, the personality of the brand. What, what were some of the other things, I guess, in terms of how, like to use advertising speak, how you activated that brand to help it, um, I guess, snowball into what it became? So what I did is I involved my community since the beginning. So, and when I say my community, it's not like I had a following because I didn't, I was an art director working in advertising. I didn't have a brand or anything. Um, I, so before starting the project, I decided to put a post on Facebook where I only had friends and family following me or, you know, being my friends on Facebook. And I asked them uh, for ideas on which fears to face. Of course, I wanted their help because I was stuck trying to write my list I was like okay I wrote 20 I don't know what else to put in here so I wanted help but at the same time I wanted involvement I didn't want to feel alone in this and I knew that if I open up the conversation with them then they would feel like they're part of it so I asked them that question and like 70 people replied saying ideas and, wow. and yeah and expressing their own fears and that was pretty cool because I started facing the fears that they suggested and every time I did I would tag them I would send it to them so I'm like hey thank you for suggesting crashing a wedding look I did it here it is <laughs> and so they would feel so good that they had an impact on me and on my project that the moment the project went viral all of them were sharing it and that is what helped me um, have a reach more people and have a bigger impact because it's not only me being proud of my project and sharing it with the world is 70 other people saying, I helped her overcome this fear or, you know, I, I gave her this idea. And, and they're so, so proud of me and also of them for being part of it. So that was my way of spreading the word even more. I, I got to ask, like, out of the hundred things that you did, what were, what were like your top three scariest? Well, I think that for some reason, doing stand-up comedy was terrifying and I was not expecting it to be that bad when I wrote it like I put it in my list to stand-up comedy I was like yeah, yeah it's not like it's something I would do but sounds fun until I started doing it also holding a tarantula I thought that was going to be like that was going to kill me. I really, really, I was, I was trying to avoid that for the long time. But then I one day visited my brother in college and his roommate had a tarantula. Oh, so gosh. of course <laughs> I had to say yes to that experience because it was in my face. I had to do it. Um, and it was not as bad. Actually, I, I actually enjoyed the tarantula crawling up my arm. She, she was like very delicate. And then I was like, this is not bad at all. I would even consider getting one for myself. So yeah, that's one. And then doing skydiving was definitely terrifying, but it was not as bad as I thought. And then the last fear 
Oh my god, I can't keep going because you're you only asked for three <laughs> of the scariest ones. No, no, I want I want to hear this next one. <laughs> but I'll tell you two more before I tell you the last one. So before that, the posing nude in front of a drawing class, that for me, it's something I never considered in my life. So just the thought of you know being naked in front of strangers terrifying i can't even believe that i did that like i still can't get over it um and but i learned a ton through that experience i'm glad i did it because i talk about it in every talk that i give and then the last fear was was really really scary and it was public speaking it was my first time doing public speaking and i decided to do it at tedx um so i had so much pressure just the thought of being on tedx is terrifying, right? It's something that will go online. And also it was being live streamed. So I knew that people from all over the world were going to be watching all of my followers by that point, because at the end I, I had followers, like real followers more than my friends and family. And even my professors at school were watching this. So, and my parents traveled to Houston uh, where I did my TEDx just for that event. So it was a lot of pressure. And I would have to say that was the scariest fear that I faced. How did you prepare for those fears? Like, did you, did you have any kind of a, you know, pre-fear ritual that you do, or was it just like, you know, just jumping in and going for it? Well, so now I think I have a better system now that I understand a little bit better what it means to face a fear back then it was just shock therapy because i didn't have much time to think about it it was every single day facing a different fear i couldn't say no because i was already committed in this project and i had the help of my husband so he would tell me what fears i was facing next according to my list but he was taking care of the planning so he was like michelle i already talked with this place you're going to learn how to fly a plane tomorrow okay so you have to grab a train go two hours away from new york to this place a man will pick you up he will teach you how to fly a plane and then you'll fly a plane okay i'm like what i'm doing what so um i had no time to think about it, it was just every day i would wake up and say oh my god i'm still in this project i what am i doing today so it was very very scary time um but now i have one tool that really helps me before i'm about to face a fear and it's a question that i ask myself so you know the typical question that people ask you when you're about to face a fear which is what's the worst that could happen right mm -hmm. Yeah. So I got that question a lot because I was facing my fears a lot, like every single day. And so people would <laughs> yeah. tell me that. And every time they would tell me that question, I was like, for some reason that doesn't help me. Like, cause you're asking me what's the worst that can happen. So I think, oh, right. I'm not going to die. Okay. Maybe I don't die, but I will embarrass myself. I, I might fail. I might get rejected. I might hurt my ego and my self-esteem. So there are many things that can go wrong whenever we take a risk. And that question only brings up the worst case scenarios. So I realized that we have to change that question around. And if we actually want to face a fear and do it with the best attitude, we have to ask ourselves, what's the best that can happen instead of what's the worst? When you think about the best that can happen, only the best case scenarios will come to your mind and will remind you the real reason why 
you in the first place thought that this was a good idea. And it also will give you the certainty, not maybe certainty because you don't know the future, but it will give you the idea at least or the vision that good things may come out of this. Because um, whenever we're about to take a risk, all of these negative thoughts start to pop into our head. And we tell ourselves things like, you're not good enough. Don't even try it. You will regret it. Who do you think you are? Right? Those are the typical thoughts that like, I don't know, pop into our heads. But when we ask ourselves, what's the best that can happen? We start to see the other side of the coin. And we're like, what if I do a good job? What if this actually resonates with people? What if I make money out of this? What if actually I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I get a yes from the person I want to ask this question. So our best life is in, they say that, that it's in the other side of fear, right? But we need to do it in a way that we feel confident and that we can see the best that can happen out of the situation. I love that, Michelle. What a great question to ask. And and look, on that note, I have one final question for you. You've got your book, Hello Fears, coming out on the 5th of May. So tell me, how can people connect with you, get a copy of your book? Where can they find you? Well, I created the website, hellofearsbook.com, where I give you an overview of the book, photos from the inside, the link to get the book. You can also just go to Amazon or whatever you buy books. It will be offered there. Well, look, Michelle, thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Thank you. The same. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much for having me. Hello there. That is it for today's show. I hope you like this episode. And if you are enjoying how I work, I would love it if you left a review uh, for the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. Um, I read every single review and uh, it's just awesome getting feedback from listeners. So thank you if you've left one. And if you haven't, maybe today is the day that you will do that. Um, So that is it for today and I will see you next time.